Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Pop Increase podcast. Um, today I'm joined by Ani. Hello. And our new co-host Anand. Hello. It seems that my deposit is finally paying dividends. Yeah, yeah. I think like Google Pay stopped giving me rewards, so I think like it's time that I made made you co-host so then maybe i can get more rewards now from google pay um but yeah um moving moving forward with uh the podcast yeah i mean uh test cricket's done for a while not not much that's coming our way uh t20s few good series going on but uh this episode is really not focusing on any of the current cricket that's happening we're actually going back 15 years to one of the most legendary white ball games that we have ever uh witnessed in the history of the game um and i think it's it's pretty fairly easy to uh guess which game we're talking about it's the uh 438 run chase by south africa against australia at the wanderers um yeah i'll i'll hand the mic over to ani right now who's who's going to be taking us through this new episode of uh, direct hits and yeah yeah so in direct hits you know we are dedicated to going through the history of cricket and sort of looking at the iconic weird and most significant moments and matches that we've seen in cricket and we uh, decided that this was just a natural game uh, game to talk about but uh, the first thing i want to ask Alan Alan you were the one who suggested this game so why did you choose this game did you watch it uh live or uh, do you have any special connection to this game uh it was this game one of the reasons you became a proteus fan um so yeah like um this one was actually one of my favorite games as a kid because um i didn't i didn't watch like 50 over games completely back in the day and um you know i i used to watch most of most of the 50 over games that i watched completely were either india australia or india pakistan and um australia was one of my favorite teams back then uh, mostly because uh, bretley used to play but south africa was a very close uh, second with uh, me almost liking almost all their main stars and current legends if you want to call them that like um, graham smith i think he's one of the best captains in the world um hershel gibbs he's always been a player that i was uh, extremely fascinated about i thought he was uh the joss butler of that era so yeah like he these these players always had like me pretty uh, attracted to the way south africa played cricket and this game did uh pull me more towards the proteas and as as you know it like after bretley retired i didn't really have any sort of uh, attachment to the Aussie side and it was all proteas from then so anand do you have any memories of this game or uh, any special connection to this game or is it just as you know, new like, as it is to me no it isn't because i mean uh, alan's a proteas fan now i was a proteas fan then uh, oh nice <laughs> so uh, <laughs> like i started being a proteas fan 2005 and i was till 2012 then i decided to pick a more neutral approach where i didn't favor any team but 
when I watch the game, I have to make one confession. I watched the first innings and as a South African fan, I was distraught. I thought they were going to get trashed. So I switched off the TV and went to sleep. And then my grandfather just woke me up next morning. And then he said, guess what happened to the South African match? And I told him to stop pestering me with the terrible news and not trouble me. And then he said, they actually won. And I got surprised. I thought he was joking and lying to me. And I started looking at the news clip and that was exactly what happened. So what mm-hmm. my grandfather and I did is we didn't see it live, but we watched the entire South African Indians on replay. Not highlights, replay. And that was quite a special memory for me because, yeah, it, it just... Uh, was something totally unexpected as a fan at that Yeah, so uh, for me, uh, I watched the highlights of this game on a flight. Basically, this was a long 30 plus hour flight from Dubai to Los Angeles. And they had a bunch of old cricket games lined up. And this was one of those games. And uh, I ended up watching the highlights of this. Uh, and I've all but forgotten the details of this game. But yeah, this was sort of a game that has been kind of legendary throughout, uh, you know, my time as a cricket fan. Everyone talks about it. It's a, it's it's an iconic game. So yeah, I mean, I wanted to look at this game much more up close and personal. And I might have a much more sort of a objective, maybe neutral view of what happened here. But just in case it isn't clear to our listeners, this is very specifically the fifth and final ODI in Australia's tour of South Africa in uh, 05-06. And uh, uh, this was at a time when uh, Australia was a dominant side. They were arguably like the best side of all time. And South Africa was also incredibly impressive and very strong. And when I started becoming a cricket fan, the two teams that were, for me, considered the strongest were Australia and South Africa. And so I kind of want to ask you guys about this sort of rivalry, uh, the Australia-South Africa rivalry, and how, uh, like, it's not really an emotional rivalry like, you know, the Ashes, or, you know, Australia-England or Australia-India, India-Pakistan, but it's a rivalry that I think was built up in the 2000s as being, like, the two best teams, and we saw the best players sort of really stepping it up in these games. And... Uh, so that was the kind of rivalry that I saw Australia and South Africa is always having. So what did you guys think of this sort of matchup? Um, I, from that I think the rivalry fairly started from uh, the, the Lance Klusner semi-final where you know he, he runs himself out in the last ball and Australia win it by a nick. So I think it, it carried on from there. And in the 2000s, yeah, like you said, two really formidable uh, cricketing outfits. Uh, that South African team was probably arguably one of the best cricketing teams ever. And if not for Pontings and Wars, Australia would have probably taken most of the accolades that were there to be taken. In fact, in the Test Arena, I think if there was a World Test Championship, I think South Africa would have won it over Australia too if they faced them in a final. So yeah, like um, these two teams, they... It's not a it's not an emotional rivalry like you said, but it's one that's been always hard fought on the pitch. And I think both teams have players who who uh, are pretty passionate about the game, and they they always like to have a go. And um, that that really is what makes this rivalry what it is. Because um, 
even if you see the latest or that Australia made, uh, you, there was not a single game that didn't have a controversy involved. Uh, like all the four test matches had something or the other involved in it. So, uh, yeah, like uh, it's just been one rivalry that's always been epic. And South Africa as a team, that too, when they tore Australia, they they managed to win a series there. And uh, they, they've, they've never really allowed Australia to completely dominate them. So I think it's it's one one thing that Australia really don't like about South Africa that way. Because uh, Australia used to dominating teams at home, more so in the 2000s era when Australia was used to beating anybody who came their way and South Africa would never just let them have it. So yeah, I think that's also one reason why Australia and South Africa have this big of a rivalry. Yeah, so the context of this series is uh, pretty exciting and the context of this game is actually pretty exciting too. So it's an old-fashioned tour, one T20 only. This was prior to the T20 boom. Uh, five ODIs and three tests. And so this was... Uh, just to give you a quick context, context of what happened in the series prior. So South Africa started with two fairly uh, comfortable wins over uh, Australia. In uh, They won by six wickets and then 196 runs in the first two games. So they had, they had a pretty commanding series lead and they just needed to win one more. But then Australia comes back in similarly convincing fashion um, in, the, in the third game where they win by 24 runs. And then the fourth ODI is a nail-biting thriller where they win in the final over with just one wicket remaining. So the series is tied 2-2. And it's kind of insane just how uh, this was the final game. Like, this was the series decider. The stakes have never been higher. The two best teams are playing. And it's, and it, and it's this kind of just ultimate thriller. Johannesburg also a great ground. So, you know, I think that being the deciding this being the deciding game to me like it just increases the profile and the legend of this game even more um did you guys follow the tour way back then on uh what was the up and down was it just as much of a roller coaster as you know the score line and the fixture results make it look i mean first thing is it's quite anachronistic to say that odi tours mattered a lot um, now it's more or less just two sides testing out that uh, bench strength, looking at other teams, and it's more to flex their muscles. It's something in between T20 and Tests, and it's the least considered the least interesting right now. But at that time, ODIs were the thing, and T20 was just some fancy new toy which uh, most people didn't know what to do with. So, I, I think in terms of the ODI series, this was quite nail-biting. I watched the entire series and like I said, I was a South African fan. And it was especially disappointing because South Africa lost their series 3-0. And yeah, it was such a good Australian side. So, I, I really wanted South Africa to get some revenge. And once the third ODI came and I started getting worried because I knew how good Australia were. So, as a fan, it was very, very... Um, let's say nervous and it was quite nervy and, and it was very difficult to handle that's why I just switched off the fifth ODI because I couldn't take the tension but as a neutral spectator I think it was a great ODI series much better than what the test series um, um, anticipated us for but it was quite an exciting nail-biting ODI series which I followed throughout and I really do wish I watched it live but fine 
uh, it's sometimes higher replays also make good memories. Yeah, and I think for me personally, it was um, the fact that this this game was being like being hosted at the Wanderers, and um, you know back then uh, in in the Hindu, you'd get like the complete schedule of the uh, tour and where each game is being hosted. So any game at the Wanderers, and I was always very excited because my first memory of a full cricket match was the World Cup final that happened at the Wanderers, and. uh that was like an insane run fest obviously a heartbreaking run fest for like uh any kid who who wanted to see india win a world cup but uh, i think that day australia just like captured captured the magic of like you know attacking cricket and uh yeah like the wanderers has always been a pretty special uh cricket ground for me to watch cricket at so um i think i was more excited for the game at the wanderers and uh even even at the toss i was pretty uh pretty excited to see how ricky ponting would bat because this was his first game back at the wanderers and we all know what what he did in the final in that world cup so yeah like that was one more reason why i was pretty excited for this game didn't follow the entire tour much but yeah like this game was one game i was very excited for yeah so uh so this is going to be part 1 where we largely focus on the first innings australia's dominant uh innings and uh talk about that and then later in part 2 we will be getting to uh south africa's uh epic chase so starting with this game so there are a few relics of old cricket you know uh that are still uh, that were that are present in this game So the first is the concept of the super sub which I had no idea that this thing even existed. So uh what is the super sub? Why did it not last? What what can you tell me about it? It's a distant cousin of the X factor that uh the BBL tried to implement in this edition. Uh it's I think the BBL did a much better job at it. Uh so basically with the super sub you had a 12th player, essentially a 12th man. who would either bat or bowl if you wanted him to so more or less like a gully cricket's version of a joker all right and this was like this, so this is a very interesting thing so there's like a a substitute uh rule this is sort of what we see in practice matches a lot where you know we see obviously with more more players yeah uh yeah. was it utilized at all in this game uh, at all because uh, i didn't i didn't seem to notice I think Australia had Brad Hogg as their super sub, and yeah, he yeah, bowled yeah. as well, which, which is I, kind of surprising, I exactly. think, to say the least, because Brad Hogg is, I mean, okay, he didn't have a great Test career, but he was very good in the shorter formats, and yeah, I, I could, I didn't understand why you'd have a bowler of Brad Hogg's caliber in the sub and not use him at all. I mean, it's quite baffling, I think. I, I mean, they, ha- I mean, we'll get to this later, but they uh, played around. you know 16 overs of uh, simons and michael clark and you know credit to them they actually delivered but uh uh but yeah i would it's kind of interesting to see that australia yeah. didn't uh, uh, choose to use uh, brad hog even even in, with uh, south africa like it's not that they... it might that not that it would have necessarily changed a lot um but the second quirk of mid 2000s cricket this is one i'm much more familiar with and that is the power play system uh and the thing about the power play 
uh, was that you had your first 10 overs of power play and then the batting side and the bowling side got i believe five overs each to and they could choose anywhere to use those power plays and it was sort of a strategic choice whereas now it the field restrictions are rigid and they are you know uh placed by the by the referee or the the ICC has mandated that these sets of overs would be the quote unquote power plays but um uh, how uh, what do you guys think of the power play as like a tactical option do you think it should come back or do you like this new um system of power plays that icc uses mm, i kind of like the idea of power plays actually i think um the that that strategy as you mentioned behind it was quite interesting but one thing i think which might have discouraged the icc is that there's a tendency towards stagnation um i don't have the stats for this but from what i recall um there was a great um, the, the the predisposition of all teams to implement the bowling power play in overs 10 to 15 and batting power play was either from overs 35 to 40 or 40 to 45 which uh, was one of the reasons i think why the icc may have just uh, scrapped it off entirely so in this match i think if you notice that uh, sometimes uh, maybe we we can talk about it in the next inning but australia did um uh, australia did use the bowling power play at uh, at over uh, at 25 30 if i'm correct so uh this is the only time where you can see that a bowling side might use a power play in a different period that's when they're getting trashed and other than that you have a typical standard um application of this uh, bowling and batting power play and i think that's the main reason why the ICC decided to cancel it because there's nothing new being done, I, I suppose. So yeah, it just became stagnated. Yeah. So for me, like the thing with the power plays is that uh, to me the bowling power play didn't uh, necessarily make too much sense because yeah, like you said, most uh, most teams just took it immediately after the batting power play. I think given how batting oriented white ball cricket has become i think an interesting development if we had the bowling power play would be that uh, teams just especially first innings teams just take the take the bowling power play in the last five overs of the game uh, because the death overs go for a lot of runs anyway you're not getting reverse swing you're not doing much so might as well just uh, you know power play in the place you know you're going to get hit and if you get enough wickets then you're uh, exposing the worst batsman of the team uh, of the batting team to the power play whereas i think taking it immediately after the batting power play you might want to sort of just stop the flow of runs because i think batsmen want to continue that uh, the form and the momentum that they might have gathered during the batting power play and so uh, i think that could could have been an interesting u- utilization of the bowling power play and the batting power play always made sense you know because you want to uh, gear up the bats when you want to give them easy runs leading up to the death overs. So 35 to 40 or 40 to 45 always makes sense to me. But I think this, if the bowler, if the bowling team had to choose when to do the power play, I would, I would have thought that they might have done it at the death when it was kind of obvious that they're going to get hit anyway. So uh, that that's my my uh, takeaway yeah, on yeah. this. Yeah, that was that was actually what many people expected but then what happened was the complete opposite where captains just wanted to be done with field restrictions as quickly as possible and 
I think that's also the reason why the ICC just made it like a blanket one right now. Yeah. So getting to the game itself, Australia batting first, they win the toss. And they are right now stacked. They are one of the most just uh, devastating batting lineups. I The first time I remember seeing them was actually the 2007 World Cup a year and after this where it would be uh, the Gilchrist demolition show in the finals. But uh, this one is kind of interesting because a familiar face by the name of Matthew Hayden is not present. Here, instead, we have uh, somewhat, uh, un- uh, somewhat you know, lesser known Australian from this era, and that is Simon Katic. Uh, but Simon Katic looked kind of like Matthew Hayden today. On that day, it was... He was aggressive. He was a great partner with Gilly. I mean, you almost wouldn't have noticed that Hayden, Hayden was missing. So, you know, just the sort of typical devastating opening partnership here in the first innings from Australia. The fact yeah. that Simon Katich is uh, a substitute in the Australian team just speaks to their incredible depth in ODIs and tests. I mean, I have to consider that even Mike Hussey was in a mainstay at one point in time. And to pick another big name, no Damien Martin. Mike Hussey is at number four. And you can just see how much depth Australia has. And um, I, I, if I remember correctly, Hayden was injured or something for that ODI. But yeah, they didn't feel like they missed him in any sense because it was a very good inning. That uh, Cartage essentially played the role of an anchor. I mean, if you see that he was one of the slowest among the... Austrian batters, but his innings ensured that Gilchrist Ponting and Gilchrist and Ponting expressed themselves while he provided the stability at the other end. And then Hasi came and completed his onslaught. Yeah, and like just to just to talk about that batting lineup a bit more, um, guys like Clark and Martin, they, they didn't even bat on that day. And you know, like that's just dangerous depth. Because uh, if you want to liken it to a white ball team right now, I mean, you'd say the England England top order, uh, England batting order, rather, is like it's that scary. But I think if if you had a face-off between the two two teams, I think the Aussie team would win it hands down. They were they were just that good, especially if you have Hayden in that batting order instead of like a Simon Cattage. I think that the Aussie side is like taking everything away from this England white ball team. Like they're that good. So yeah, like I mean, it was. I think any bowling team would be scared to like go up and bowl to them. And uh, yeah, like and South Africa really got hammered on that. That wondrous pitch was just a complete road. Did nothing for the bowlers. Yeah, I, I think Katic was kind of unfortunate in his career to uh, enter his prime in the sort of era that he did because he had very few years as like the first choice guy. Like he was. He was the first choice show opener when uh, Australia was trying to transition after uh, Gilly and Hayden, where Warner wasn't yet, you know, fully realized. Finch hadn't entered the scene yet, and you know, Sean Marsh wasn't necessarily, you know, that guy. So Catfish uh, was a little unfortunate. He has a decent-ish record um, in international cricket. But I mean, if uh, I just interject, he has a decentish record for an Australian batter from that team. His average in tests is 46. So, I mean, that's actually quite good for an opener. 
and uh, yeah. the only way he could make him rashi inside was uh, as a number 6 batter in both wars and ponting's time but i think he had a pretty good record for uh, a normal batter as uh, for nashel maybe a little on the lower side but not too much yeah and in test matches obviously there was the the langer <laughs> spot as well for a long time langer with obviously a lot of longevity and consistency and runs and then obviously you know shane watson was the more sort of sexy flashy name on the uh, on the in that australian top order so uh, i think catch kind of goes a little you know i i don't want to say entirely underrated because i i wouldn't have taken him over any of these guys but yeah it's 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 kind of it's it's a little tragic that he he had this thing but you know he definitely made his mark on the subject of damian martin and michael clark i mean the inter- they, they didn't come out today because this is exactly kind of like how india would use hardik pandya now right they would elevate him to number 4 when their top 3 plays this well and they and you have like a barrage of finishers both hasi and simon are fantastic finishers but like the thing is clark could easily slot clark and martin could easily slot into that number 4 number 5 slot if early wickets fall and they can build big partnerships as well and so there's so much fluidity in this batting lineup the concept of hasi being a floater you know you can really put him anywhere uh from 1 to 7 uh it's 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 just like that just makes it uh, adds to the layers of how this australian side can beat you i was never lucky enough to see michael bevan live and my dad would tell me a lot about just how michael bevan was this unbelievable finisher he was just the best you could never get him out and he would just you know dhoni his way to victories before dhoni you know did it himself and michael hasi was tipped as the successor to michael bevan but you know from everything i hear and i've seen he was kind of michael bevan on steroids because he had the strike rate he had the flair he had the ability to just hit that's true like even the smallest mistake by the bowler even if it's a bit touch short uh, michael hasi is dispatching it away and just how consistent he would consistently he would do this i mean it's kind of insane that he started as late as he did because this guy could have really been a guy that racked up the runs Yeah, over a longer career. Yeah, I think he came into the Australian side with the nickname of Mr. Cricket, and like you know, it's it's insane that someone comes into an Australian side with that that kind of a nickname. And also, even in this game, uh, Martin almost came out to bat, and then Ponting had to change the order up, and he brought Hussey out. So uh, <laughs> I I also like remember this because uh, when I was watching the highlights uh, this weekend, I heard Tony Craig say that, and I was like, wow, okay. so like they completely wanted to go out all brute force and make use of the use of that pitch that bowling attack everything so yeah i think and strategy worked you can't complain because hasi looked sublime he looked like he i mean at that point of time you'd probably say that catch and hasi were the sort of unknown quantities slash weaklings in this batting order which uh, you know the two players if sa wanted to try and attack and put pressure on would be these two but both of them took the game away like Didn't give SA anything. Yeah, I mean, Hasi was even a great T20 player for that matter. I still remember his um, knock against Pakistan in the 2009 uh, T20 semi-final, where he just took one of the best bowlers at that time, Ajmal, to the cleaners. And yeah, I think with Hasi, is he he just couldn't make it the squad test one day or anything for that matter, and. you said he was bevan on steroids the one thing which made bevan so good was his ability to play in difficult wicket which hasi also had but it's just that the 
ODI scene was transforming entirely. Um, so you needed a person with a strike rate like Hussies to actually level up the ODI game and they brought him at the right time, I feel, Australia. Even though you could argue it's a little harsh, I think at that time when there was a lot more um, nip in the air and off the pitch for ODI, uh, for ODI wickets, I think Bevan was one of the perfect finishers in that game. And Australia just figured out the right time to transition and bring Hasi and he flourished immediately. Yeah, so there's two names we haven't mentioned yet. I want to save the best for last, but I want to really quickly talk about Andrew Simons' uh, little cameo at the end. Simons was another one of those guys that was sort of, he came at the right time because him and Hussey, they were really meant for the 2020 game as well. They were really guys that pushed uh, ODI cricket forward with uh, how aggressive they were. And um, Simons was, in my brain, when I saw Simons, he was like the most dangerous dude because you could, like, he could really just go off and destroy you. And I mean, he did his job like almost perfectly, just did not waste any time and probably converted like a 400 score to a 430 score, which, which sounds insane to say, especially in <laughs> 2006. But yeah, Andrew Simons was like, I, I mean, I think I, I really like, I, I, I was really afraid when bowlers went against him, especially in the depth. Like he was definitely a, a scary dude. So, Andrew Simons was, uh, I'd say, the A.B. de Villiers of that 2000s period because um, the, 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 the danger quotient that A.B. has when he's at the crease, that's how good Simons was. And I actually think Simons was more of a brute than a 360 player like A.B. But Simons possessed the quality to like find boundaries at will. And that was, that was an insane quality to have in the 2000s because... Back then, it was not easy to hit sixes. You, you really had to be like extremely skillful and powerful to like try and hit the ball away for a six. And like where, compared to now, where the bats are thicker and the boundaries are slightly shorter, you have two new balls, all that. So coming in the 35th, 40th over and then taking games away from the bowlers, that was a whole different ball game back, back in the day. And Simons had mastered that. He was tailor-made for that sort of a game. and also, in, in this one particularly, I think Simons had a lot of help from the South African bowlers, especially Roger Telemachus, who for some reason bowled a whole over of no balls. So, <laughs> that, that probably did help uh, Simons make a 400 into a 430. Yeah, I mean, no free hits in this match as well. So, um, it wasn't as costly, but my God, there was some terrible bowling. But to get back on Simons, I think he was the perfect brute force uh, factor in the Australian side. Not to mention he was a proper all-rounder in ODIs, at least not test. In ODIs, he was a very handy bowler. And uh, let's face it, he was one of the best fielders in that era. So I think Simon was such a great asset to have in an ODI side. And he just showed why through, by coming in as a finisher. And just like you said, converting 400s to 430s. With the aid of Roger Telemachus as well. Yeah. And so, last but certainly not least, we have the captain who played it. Two captains in his Ricky Ponting, 164 of 105 deliveries, 13 fours, 9 sixes, strike rate of 156. This is like amazing. And I think uh, Ricky Ponting is like one of those guys where he just took absolutely no time to get settled. 
He would be compact from ball one. He just knocked it cleanly. Uh, never really felt like you know he was unsure or he was being troubled. Like ninety percent of the time, he just come in, start scoring. Wouldn't waste a lot of balls. And even though he's not like known as an aggressive six hit six hitter, because he doesn't, he has like he he doesn't play a lot of dot balls. He doesn't waste a lot of balls. And so every sort of boundary and six just kind of starts accumulating. And you know he is just so unstoppable, and you know I you know he he does he obviously doesn't have the cult of personality of you know Sachin Tendulkar, and he doesn't have the flair of a Brian Lara. But I mean this guy is was as dominant as any batsman we had in the mid two thousands and early twenty tens. Yeah, and I also feel like um, Ricky Ponting was the perfect number three of that era. Like, I don't think you can find a better number three. And in this innings, I think he, you know, like when you score a score of like one, one thirty, one forty plus, batsmen tend to give at least one or two chances, you know, on route to that where you know they dropped and all that. But I think in this innings, Ponting gave only one half chance. Just one half chance. It wasn't even like a very easy chance that you'd say like, oh, you know, South Africa dropped it and like you know pressure and all that. It was just a completely clean innings, and there was there was there was nothing that the bowlers could do. Or I mean, even if they, I don't even think they tried because like there was a lot of nothing balls bowled at him. Too many balls in the slot. Uh, the slower one was slowly coming into fashion back then, and like I think uh, they they tried. Tried the slower one to him, and Ricky just like deposited them back to back into the stand. So like there was a one face in the middle where, uh, you know, it felt like uh, Ricky Ponting was playing uh, with a bowling machine because they were bowling the same balls to him at the same areas, and he was hitting the same shot, and it was the same result every time. I mean, yeah, it was. It reminded me a lot of tennis ball cricket uh, because the hitting was so clean. <clears throat> And uh, generally, whenever we played cricket, we only had um, certain straight boundaries or something like that. And like Alan said, they bowled him a lot of the same ball, and he was just uh, hitting sixes like clockwork at the towards the end of the innings. It was, it was some of the most cleanest hitting I ever seen. I mean, um, I would argue that Ponting is one of the uh, in terms in ODI cricket at least. Ponting was definitely the second best cricketer of his era. The best being obviously Sachin. I mean, I, I really can't take that away from him. Um, but um, as a number three, I mean, I, I can't think of anyone. But maybe Sangakara and even Sangakara um, could not score as freely as Ponting did in pressure situations. So I, I think this is another masterclass. I mean, I've seen plenty of Ponting masterclasses on how to establish and immediately start asserting yourself on the get-go. And and also like I think this game sort of like you know it was it was still fresh with the whole spring bat sort of myth and him doing it again at the Wanderers I think like sort of you know solidified that whole theory of you know what pointing bats with spring bat was a similar type of inning same same type of result same ground everything everything just tied down to the fact that he probably still has a spring in his bat. Yeah, I mean, coming to like I think he is the definitive. Number th- number three. I mean, the only guys that I can think of before, like <laughs> my time, like way before, like Brad or Viv uh, Richards, but like you know, even like Sangakara, Callis, Virat, Rahul Dravid. I've seen all of these guys play in other positions. 
you know, to accommodate the team. Like Fontaine was one of those guys you cannot remove him from number three at all. Like this guy is the definitive number three batsman. But talking about, but you know, it's a talk about Ponting is a good way to segue into the South African bowling. This is not the dominant South African uh, bowling attack that uh, we're used to. I guess you know this is after Alan Donald and Lance Klusner. Uh Pollock was probably injured during this this time. Antini sort of wine. I mean, he is in the twilight of his career. No stain in Morkel yet. So we have names like Andrew Hall, Johan Vandover, and Roger Telemachus accompanying the great Makaya and with the ball. And also a rare Graham Smith sighting with the ball, uh, four overs, 29 runs. So I feel like this South African team definitely helped this Australian batting lineup a lot. I mean, you can't, I mean, these guys are going to hit anybody, but if you're going to give them sort of a, a such a, a, a toothless, Bowling attack. When I was seeing, there was no real pace. There was no real like bite to the bowling in this uh, in this attack. So I was I was a little disappointed with uh, with the South African bowling attack. Yeah, I mean, I think it speaks volumes when uh, Graham Smith, the most part timer of part timers, like uh, he is the most economical bowler in that in that uh, attack on that day. I think it speaks volumes to how bad the bowling was. Uh, in that match. And I think Antini also, not just that um, he was at the twilight of his career, I think he also missed his hunting partner in Pollock that day. Uh, Andrew Hall, I, I really don't think he was the best choice to start your innings with. Uh, I mean, I would have gone with maybe Jacques Callis or someone you know who's probably a better choice with the new ball because Hall, Hall is like, okay, he's a good utility all-rounder, but he's more of a batter than a bowler. Uh, at least from what I can remember, he wasn't really a great uh, bowler. Like, he can give you four or five overs. Uh, yeah, but like not really a opening bowler quality type that you'd want to use, especially in a decider. And yeah, so yeah, I was I was pretty surprised with the fact that uh, Hall, Hall actually opened the bowling when I saw the highlights today. I mean, yeah, they had a lot of bits and pieces cricketers. Hall, Johan van der Vaart. Both of them were kind of like who can who up players who can do a bit of this and that, but not good in either of them. Hall was also pretty ordinary in batting a number nine or number ten. So yeah, I mean they really didn't have much in the bowling, and Telemachus was just starting his career. Um, the one bowler who I thought could have bowled a little more was Justin Kemp, who was a very handy all-rounder in their side. He was emerging as a very decent ODI option as a, a number six in batting and a very, very handy medium pacer. And I was surprised to see him bowl so less. Maybe he had some nickel, I'm not sure. Uh, but yeah, he just bowled one over. And if he had bowled more, maybe South Africa could have contained Australia a lot better. And as for Graham Smith, I think he used to bowl a lot more then than now. I mean, um, I remember him bowling uh, quite frequently in tests. So before he became the most part-timers of part-timers. But yeah, I mean, this was a very, very ordinary bowling performance, say the least. Um, and even from Makaya Anthony, I think he was quite ordinary as well. And they really needed some bit of um, magic from the other end, which was lacking. 
and not just magic. There's there's no consistency. The only consistency uh, of this from the South African bowlers is delivering slot balls for Ponting to hit. And and I also feel like uh, South Africa could have used that super sub option, you know, because you know when they knew the runs were going berserk, and their super sub was Robin Peterson. He's not he's not gonna like win you the game with his batting and. Yeah, you ideally want an extra batter in your side when your the opposition is going going off the handle. But you know what you could have also tried is maybe brought on a specialist spinner like Robin Peterson. Okay, granted he is not like a all-time great spinner or like you know not even on the same quality level as Brad Hogg. But I think he would have done a much better job than uh, what like you know having Graham Smith bowl four overs or even like Justin Kemp and he's just giving you one over. I think he would have definitely tried. Playing, playing uh, Peterson there, especially when he's gonna give you the same result with the bat like an Andrew Hall. I don't think there's like a great, great uh, uh, difference in like not playing him. Yeah, I mean, I think it more mostly speaks to us, uh, South Africa's sort of transition in a bowling attack. I mean, I think we are right now in a position where most countries have their bowling attack kind of figured out. Most of the big ones, anyway, they have like a solid rotation of guys that are, you know, really good. Whereas, you know, that's not always the case. And I think trying to like this period in the in the late two thousands when Antini and Pollock were winding down their careers, and Stain and Markel hadn't really, uh, you know, sparked their own. I think that was kind of like a weird gray area place for you know, uh, for South Africa, but. Regardless of how much, how great the Australian bowling attack was and how mediocre this South African uh, bowling attack was, I still think that 400 back in 2006 would have been a really, you know, shocking and a, a very unique and very surprising score. And I think, uh, you know, Alan mentioned the Wanderers being an exciting pitch. I think part of why it's an exciting pitch is because it's actually a great bowling pitch regardless of where you're bowling in. I remember the last India-South Africa test series when the Yoburg test, they almost had to call it off because of, it was almost getting too dangerous for the batsman to play that kind, that kind of bounce in movement. Uh, I've always liked uh, the Wanderers for that because it's, it's pacey, it's bouncy, there's a lot of movement. It's, it's, it's just a great ground overall. But it kind of looked a little flat uh, in this game. And so do you think like was this like a different pitch or was this some kind of aberration? Like, why do you think 400 runs went on a, I mean, on, on, on a ground like Wanderers? Yeah, in one day, I think it wasn't that much of an aberration. Wanderers is always flat. And to hark back to the most recent memory, which Alan already spoke about, Ponting uh, smashed in uh, smash 160 runs in the World Cup final as well. So, Wanderers wasn't... Um, the same dangerous pitch which you would see in test cricket uh, for ODS. In the shorter formats, it was quite a good batting ground, which is why this um, this ODI was set up quite nicely as the final of the trophy, uh, as the final of the series. Now, but yeah, that's one of the reasons why it was pretty flat and there was nothing in. I mean, nothing for uh, bowlers and spinners. But regardless of that. I think 400 was very shocking. There's a reason why I shut the TV because however great South Africa were as chasers, at least in at least in bilateral ODI series, we're not talking about World Cups here. Um, at least in bilateral ODI series, I thought 434 was 
beyond uh, any uh, reasonable ODI side, I thought it's not worth watching. Yeah, I mean, there's a real contrast between, you know, 400 being that kind of a total. I mean, to me, getting 260 plus made, made, made the chase difficult, even like into the early 2010s. Uh, whereas now, like, you know, especially if you're playing against England or something, like a 400, not getting 400 is almost a disappointment now. Uh, not getting 300 is like a death sentence. So, uh, I mean, I, I it's actually as much of a bowl, bowler biased guy that I am, I think seeing 400 in that picture quality uh, is, is, is kind of a, a nice uh, sort of experience to witness for me. Um, anyway, moving on to uh, the last bit of this part of the podcast is uh, what are what is the most memorable moment for you in this first innings? Were there any memorable moments? Was did one particular innings stand out? I don't think any of the wickets really stood out for me. But uh, so was there any one particular inning that really stood out? That really uh, a one shot, one moment that really uh, that you would remember from this first inning? Uh, I mean, it has to be Ponting's hundred, right? I mean, you can't really look past that. This was just a brilliant innings on the day, and like. Uh, he, he was fantastic. I don't think you can like even try and look past that and say like, oh, there was innings better than that on that day uh, for Australia at least. Uh, I mean, if I'm being very honest, uh, I was quite the fussy kid then, at least when it came to my cricket matches. And uh, seeing South Africa lose so badly made me only angry. I mean, they didn't lose obviously, but seeing them getting trashed made me angry and I, and I really didn't think that there was anything memorable at that time because I was mostly sitting with a very frustrated expression. So, yeah, I mean, but in hindsight, I would uh, like to think about Hussey's innings um, because obviously there's Ponting's innings, but Hussey's innings uh, set the template for the future. So, since I'm... Um, in looking at this match, in hindsight, I think it would be good to say that Hussey's inning was quite memorable for me. Yeah, I mean, if I was to pick, uh, I'd go with the aforementioned infamous Telemarkus over. Um, there's only one other over that I remember, like being that old. There was, there was an over, I think, it was bowled by Daryl Tuffy. It was like the first over against an Australia game. Like, this is like a Oh, God. Game. Yeah. Oh, my God. That game. Yeah. Uh, that that was uh, this this kind of rivaled that as sort of just a <laughs> bowler with absolutely no control. Uh, the interesting thing looking at this, um, Koshi the Salmak has actually had a maiden over in this <laughs> as well. So I guess he I guess he made up for his maiden over with uh, with that uh, abomination of an over. And uh, so yeah, seeing something that that uh, horrendous is a work of art in in and of itself. So I. I <laughs> Bipolar. That. It's like bipolar in many ways. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that brings us to the end of part one. Uh, thank you all for listening. And uh, we will continue the uh, riveting story of this uh, one-day game in part two. So, until then, uh, see you next time.